you know, we talked about it a little bit at the at the welcome, but we are halfway through this fast. And it's fast. <laughs> yes, Lord. And you know, when we pray for breakthrough, anything that you do for the Lord, anything that you go after in the Lord, understand there will always be resistance. And I put this in the bulletin, but I, I, I want to I say this and say it out loud. There may be people that have started the fast and right away failed. Or got a little bit into it and then failed. And then felt like, just like when you start a New Year's resolution, you know, on January 1st, by January 2nd, <laughs> you failed, right? And then you feel, well, I guess it's over. I'll have to wait till next year to start it again. Don't feel that way. Don't feel that way with the fast. The fast is something different. It is seeking God's heart. It's going after Him intimately. It is literally sacrificing something that's important to you to say, God, I want you more. So if you came to a place where you failed in that, just start again. Just redo and begin again what you had told Him that you're going to commit to. And seek Him. Seek Him in everything that you have. Because there is resistance that happens. That's why it's a sacrifice. If there was no resistance in the Christian walk, we would not have maturity. Do you understand? When we look at Christ and His life on earth, He met resistance after resistance after resistance. Why? Was that to, to just, I don't know, give the devil something to do? No. It's because of this warfare that we've been talking about for weeks. See, Jesus, the Bible says, and this, this is, just has always been amazing to me. The Bible said, Jesus learned obedience. Isn't that crazy? So if Jesus learned obedience through that resistance, why do we think that we shouldn't have to go through that? Why do we think that we shouldn't have to have that resistance? Of course we do. Every time you make a decision for the Lord, rest assured, you will have resistance. Because that builds the very character that you're asking for. That builds the very personality, the very intimate place with Jesus Christ that you're asking for. So don't worry about the resistance. Don't fear the resistance. Don't let discouragement set in because of the resistance. Tell the, tell the resistance that it's not of God. And that you believe God and not the resistance. Amen. We pray for breakthrough. We've been praying for breakthrough. I have been praying for certain things for over two years. And when they don't happen, especially when He promises they will happen, it's easy to see that resistance as, I'm not supposed to do that. Or maybe it's too tough. Maybe God really didn't call me to that. 
Perhaps God really doesn't want to use me that way, or maybe He doesn't really actually work that way. But yet I'm confused because I see it in other people. I see it, most importantly, in the Word. He works that way. The Word says He works that way. So don't believe the resistance. Don't believe the spirits of discouragement. Okay? Of trying to confuse us. To deceive us. Those spirits are strong. By the way, understand they're spirits. They're not emotions. It's just like fear. And this one hit me like a ton of bricks. Because when I was growing up, I loved to be afraid. I don't know, maybe weird people are like that. I used anything that I could do to be afraid. I loved that emotion. You know, it, it, it was, you know, when, when I was a freshman in college and was playing football, one of our, one of our um, uh, kind of entry, you know, what you do to freshmen <laughs> as older people to be part of the group or whatever, we had to go and we had to spend the night in a graveyard. And, and in this graveyard, it was, it was, there's this thing called a screaming statue. I won't get into it, but it really did. It was just weird. The, the, it had like a finger like this, and any time the wind blew, it sounded like a cat screaming. Which I hate cats, but whatever. But the interesting thing was, on the football team, this was like a scary thing, a bad thing. And I'm thinking, awesome, sign me up. I'll do that. I don't even care if the rest of the football team does that. Why? Because I liked that feeling of being scared. And then I learned that the Bible said, the spirit of fear. Ooh. Wait a second. So what I'm actually doing and wanting to have that feeling is I am wanting the spirit of fear to take control of my life. I'm wanting to let the spirit of fear in in some way or another. Why? To make me feel like a man. Make me feel like I'm strong, I'm cool. Gives me cool stories. Right? But in reality, what am I doing? I'm letting a spirit have a voice in me. We do that all the time. We do that with discouragement. You think that it's an emotion that you're just feeling. When in reality, it's a spirit that you're allowing. Right? It's a spirit that we allow when we get down. Because our expectations aren't met. But see, we see things on a very different realm than Jesus sees them. And, and when, when you sit and you pray, Lord... I want intimacy with you. Just like Matthew 6.33 says, seek Him in His kingdom. He's not going to do it in yours. He's not going to find you in your kingdom. He's not going to find you confined to these three dimensions plus time. Because He's outside of that. That's where you trust. That's where you just say, Lord, You promised in your word, that when I seek you, I will find you. You didn't say when, and I'm okay with that. But you said, yes, I will. So I trust you. So now that we're halfway through this fast, one, if you fail, pick it back up. And if you fail again, pick it back up again. 
If you fail every day, start the next day and don't. Just keep going. Keep trusting. Keep seeking Him. But we're halfway through this fast. And what did God promise? God promised breakthrough. God promised that things would happen in this fast. One, He said that sometimes there are certain spirits that can only be broken through prayer and fasting. So when you go before Him and you sacrifice for Him, seeking intimacy with Him, you will find Him. Period. Done. End of discussion. So trust Him in that. So in the rest of this fast, trust in what He's doing. And by the way, as a church body, I I can tell you this, at the beginning of the fast, He had said to me that we will have certain things happen during this fast. He said there will be giftings that are manifest, new giftings that are manifest in this fast. And I'm here to tell you that that has been happening. Whether you see it or not, I get to see it because people tell me about it. Just this morning, somebody told me about it. That happened just a few days ago. Josh was talking to me this morning. He and I have been had a close relationship for years. Goes all the way back to being in the band together, probably five, six years ago. And just recently, he has been seeking God with his whole heart. No gifts have been manifested in him. But yet, just this past week, his eyes began to open. Are they fully open? No. Are they going that direction? Yes. So I'm here to tell you as a testimony, there are things happening during this fast. Perhaps you could look at something in your own life. Perhaps you can look and see God is doing this in me. Maybe He showed you something in Scripture that you had never seen before. That was, that was my case last week. And we're going to read it again here in a moment but where he told about the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was sent to do. So trust him. Trust him during this fast. You're going to see more happen in the next 20 days. You're going to see more closeness, more intimacy with Jesus Christ if you are faithful and go after him. I promise you. I promise you. I give you permission to come up and call me a liar if it doesn't happen. Because I know it will. Simply because he promised. He said, if you seek him, you'll find him. So we've been talking about, we're in this this, uh, series. I don't even know if we could call it a series anymore. Because I think it's been eight weeks. (laughs) Or this might be the eighth week. But we're talking specifically now about the courts of heaven about how these courts of heaven operate and how we have authority in these courts of heaven and we can deal with the enemy in these courts of heaven. Why? Because heaven is set up as a court. We're going to go through some of that. Before I do, last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit was sent to partner with us on it. I want you to turn to John 16. I know we went through this last week, but I just want to remind you of this. John chapter 16. And I'm just going to read real quick 7, starting in verse 7. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says. For if I do not go away, the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit could not come until Jesus left, until he ascended to the Father's throne. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe me. We talked about that being salvation to those who don't know Christ. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness was the sanctification. The Holy Spirit will teach that sanctification. Why? Because Jesus wasn't going to be here anymore to teach the disciples. He had been their mentor for three years. And he was not going to be with them any longer. So he said, I send the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's going to teach you in the ways of righteousness. He will teach you that sanctification. But then 11, concerning judgment, verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's what points to the courts of heaven. See, the Holy Spirit is sent to teach us how to operate in the courts. Why? Because we're an integral part of the enemy being judged. See, the enemy is judged because of what he does to us, because of what he did to God's creation. So in this court system, remember, heaven is a court. So you have to have authority to be in this court. Right? If, if, you're, if you're studying law and you want to be an attorney, before you even take the bar exam, you can't go in and argue in court. Right? You have to take the bar exam. You have to pass the bar exam. <laughs> you have to be qualified to go in and to argue your case before, before the courts. Right? It's no different with us, with Christianity. But that is also why in the, there's a stark difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. We're going to talk a little bit about this, and we've talked about it in the past. But in the Old Testament, we did not have an advocate, right? Okay, Israel had a high priest, and the high priest was their advocate before the throne. We're going to go through a little bit of that in Zechariah. But see, in the New Testament, it's different. Jesus came and he said in, in our lives, when he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead and he went to be with the Father, he went on a mission. See, why do you think Jesus didn't just stay here? He, he already died. Why didn't he just stay here and establish his kingdom? Because he had to go and be an advocate or a lawyer, an attorney for us before the throne of God, before the courts of heaven. Why? Because the Gentiles were being grafted in. Praise God. Praise God he didn't establish his kingdom immediately. Because Paul said it was a surprise, it was a secret in the Old Testament that one day when Jesus died and rose again, the Gentiles, which are all but the Jews, would be grafted in. They didn't replace the Jews. Understand that. Jews are God's chosen people. Always have been. Always will be. But Gentiles were grafted in. We were grafted into the same branch. 
So in that process of grafting, we're exposed to the enemy, right? When we live our lives, we're exposed to the enemy. We're exposed to temptation. We're exposed to troubles. We're exposed to problems. None that Jesus himself did not face. We, we always talk about the temptation that he faced, right? We, we know the Bible says that he, ta- he faced all the same temptation that we do. See, but it's not just temptation where the enemy goes after you. Because sometimes there are protections in place where he can't. He can't tempt you in certain ways. It doesn't mean he doesn't go after you to block you. Right? How, how many times do we go about our lives and just the weirdest things happen that cause some problem? Right? Uh, all of a sudden, this is happening in my life. I, I don't even know, you know how it happened. You know, my, my car broke down and it's brand new. <laughs> I just drove it off the lot. Well, how'd that happen? Okay, don't, don't be confused. The enemy can fight you in other ways aside from temptation. If, if you are seeking the Lord, you are a target of the enemy. But that's the best place to be. Because Jesus Christ gives us everything that we need to overcome the enemy. So we have been given this authority to be in his courts. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, and we're going to begin with verse 18. We'll just read verse 18. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? In other words, who can be qualified to stand before the Lord? Remember, heaven is a court. And if you're going before the Father, you are going before the judge. So it says, who? Who can be there? Who can do this? And we're going to go through a couple things here. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I just want to show you, I want, to get, I want you to get the idea that heaven is set up as a court. I want you to understand that. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we're going to begin and we'll read through 24, says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What he's doing here, Paul is describing a scene. He's saying, you're literally coming before a scene where you have the Father, the Judge, sitting on His throne. You have Jesus Christ, your advocate right here. But you know what? That's not it. You have a gallery. You have a gallery that watches on. You have a gallery not only of angels, but let's go down to verse... Or go back, I'm sorry, to verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there is a great cloud of witnesses. This cloud of witnesses are not just the angels, but there are those who went on before us. Those who are in heaven now, they witness what we do before the court. They become witnesses with us. Right? Let's look at one more. Psalm 89. Psalm chapter 89. And we're going to read verse 14. Again, giving us an idea of this language that the Bible, all throughout the Bible, that's why I want to take you to a couple different passages because it's not just one's perspective. It's not just that Paul, Paul was a legalist, so he liked to talk about the courts of heaven. No, this is all throughout the Word of God. The, the language of the Word of God is a court system. So verse 14 says this, Righteousness and judgment... I'm sorry, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. David's crying out, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. He's talking about the very foundations of that courtroom. You know, we have, in our court system today, we have foundational doctrine, right? It's called the Constitution. So, so when a judge goes before, you know, and he has a case come before him, then what's happening there is, is he has to go off a mandated constitution. Here, here in, in America, they have to go according to the constitution. They'll do their best to change it sometimes. But that's what they have to go by. They have to go by their interpretation of the constitution. God's no different. God goes by the constitution of his own law. He has to. And what is that? It says it right here. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness are what drive him. That the, the Hebrew words there, go before you, literally mean to drive you. So what drives the Lord in this justice, in this righteousness? It's His love. It's His steadfast love and faithfulness to that love. He is faithful to the foundations of His law, which are love and righteousness. So after all that, now I want to take you to a scene. Okay, because we, we've seen just the language throughout the, the Bible of, of the courts of heaven and how it's a court and we operate within these courts and we've been talking about that. But how do we do it? How do we go before the court? How are we qualified to go before the court? And I want to give you an Old Testament example of this because it's really quite extraordinary. I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Now, Joshua here, where it's talking about Joshua, he is the high priest of Israel. This isn't the Joshua that, that took the promised land. Okay, this is later. This is 
the high priest at that time. Okay? So verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord. And, and, and remember, Zechariah at this time is the prophet, right? Okay, but Joshua is the high priest. And, and the Lord is, is showing Zechariah vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand a pluck? Is this a is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, Satan came to accuse. Right? What what was happening here? And this this was something actually happening in the courts of heaven. Joshua, who was the high priest, he's standing before the Father. Remember, at this time. There was not an advocate. He was the advocate. He was the advocate for, for Israel. So he's standing before the Lord, before the Father as the judge. And what happened? Satan, who is our accuser, at Revelation 12.10, we know that. He comes as the accuser. He stands next to him before the court. You can picture this scene going on. He stands next to him to accuse him. To accuse him that he is not right for this position. And we're going to see in a moment why. That he's filthy. He has no right to come before you. He is filthy. He should not have access to heaven's court. I'm here to accuse him. And what does the Father do? I love it. You ever see, you ever watch TV, these these courtroom shows where the, the judge actually gets upset with a lawyer. I love that. It's like, yeah, that's so cool. You know, the, the lawyer just thinks they're all full of something and they're feeling good about what they're saying and, and they're, they're going on and on and everything else. <laughs> and then the judge just comes down on them. says, I will not allow that in my court. I will not allow that because that's not truth. That's manipulation. I will not allow that. That's what he's saying here to Satan. He said, I rebuke you. You are incorrect in accusing that way. So let's, let's read on. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed, clothed with filthy garments. That angel is one of those cloud of witnesses. Right? The angel is, has some position in the court, and he's standing next to him. Perhaps he's a bailiff. <laughs> I don't know. Think of him as a bailiff, perhaps. Okay? So, so notice this, though. The second part of verse 3, he's, he's standing next to this, this angel, but he's clothed in filthy garments. See, that's the accusation that the enemy used. He shouldn't be here. He is clothed in filthy garments. He, he shouldn't be here. Now remember, the Lord rebuked him for that. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And, and by the way, this is now the Lord is speaking to him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So what's going on here? See, he was not qualified to come before the courts. Because what Satan was saying, there was truth to it. Why? Because we see it. We see he's clothed in filthy garments. But because of his heart and his position as high priest, which is the key, I want you to keep that in your mind, he is the high priest. Now, any, of, any high priest was not just by election. Not like today where we all vote for a high priest. Okay, the high priest was chosen by God. So he has been chosen by God. He steps before the Lord in the court. He steps before the Lord and he comes before him and what he, what he has the filthy rags, right? So he has this unpreparedness. He's not prepared to go before the Lord. But yet he's been picked to go before the Lord. So what happens? They say change his garments. Change his garments so that he is clean. Take off the filthy garments and put on the clean garments. This was a requirement for going before the the judge. But notice what he said on the second part, and give him a clean turban. Okay, you have to understand, to really understand what that means, because there's an application in the New Testament for us. See, to the Hebrew back then, and to the Hasidic Jew even now, that turban was a head covering. That was to show that they had a covering. God was a covering in their life. So for him to have a dirty turban was to say that there was, there was input by something other than God. God said, give him a clean turban. Give him a clean covering. Give him clean input into his life. So the very authority in his life was cleansed. See, it's not that the authority was dirty. It was he allowed it to become dirty. See, if if you put on new clothes and you go out and you play in the dirt, it's going to get dirty, right? You know, that's what's going on here. So he's saying, give him a clean turban. Give him a new covering, a new mind. In the New Testament, we would equate that with give him the mind of Christ. Give him that righteousness that's required for intimacy. Give him that. And that's what what he is then given. Verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Do you see what just happened? See, Joshua, who had been picked as high priest, he had to be sanctified. He had to be commissioned, if you will, to come before the courts. He had to have the right to come before the courts, which was given to him when he was picked as high priest. 
But then, to be active in the courts, to be effective in the courts, he had to have a clean turban. He had to have clean clothes. He had to be a changed person to have effectiveness in the courts. So, so we think of this in our own situation. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now we're going to go to New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2. See, when we get saved, there's something that happens in our life. Remember, we no longer need a high priest because Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, went to the right hand of the Father. He is not sitting on His throne. He is to the right hand of the Father. The Father's throne is His judgment seat. Again, picture it like a courtroom. The Father is sitting in His judgment seat. He has a lawyer to His right who is Jesus Christ. He has an accuser to His left who is Satan who is constantly there accusing. But understand who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ then became our high priest. See, when He died, He became our high priest permanently. The Bible says He became the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says in Hebrews. He is the permanent high priest. So we don't need a high priest. We have a high priest. That's Jesus Christ. We don't need an attorney in a high priest. We have an attorney. The Bible says Jesus is our advocate. We went through that last week. Advocate in the Greek means effectively lawyer. One who argues law before the court. So we have a lawyer there. So what happens when we get saved? Verse 9 of of 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, But you are a chosen race. He's talking to those who are the chosen ones of God, the bride specifically. Okay, this is not Israelites. This is not His chosen nation. This is His chosen bride. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His mar- marvelous light. It's, under, it's really important to understand two words. Two words in that verse. And there are many other verses in the, in the New Testament that talk about this. Revelation being one. But we are a royal priesthood. First of all, that's unique. Because see, in the Old Testament, the royalty and the priestly line were different. It was Levi for the priests, it was Joshua for the royal line. But what happened when Jesus Christ came and He died on the cross for our sins, He was both. He was both from the line of David going through Joshua, but He was also through the line of Levi. He was a priest and a king. So therefore, when we accept Him into our hearts as Savior, we become a co-share in that promise. We become kings and priests. 
Because we share in His promise that He was given as a man. If you don't believe me, read through Revelation. There are only three people or group, people types, in the Bible that are called kings and priests. Melchizedek was one. He was the priest that Abraham, who was the beginning of Israel, the beginning of the children of God, the chosen nation, he went and he gave his tithes and offerings to Melchizedek, who was the high priest at the time. Now that was extraordinary. Because the Jewish nation looks at Abraham as being the father of everything. And Hebrews points out that there was more authority in the high priest before that. That's why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron, who was the first high priest. Right? So, so it's, it's, the, fir- the first one who was kings and priests was Melchizedek, because it says he was a king and a priest. The second one was Jesus Christ. Jesus is called a king and a priest. We know he is our high priest, he is our king, right? But the third one will really get you excited, and that's the body of Christ. Those who accept him into their heart as Savior, we become kings and priests. So if we go back to what it said in Zechariah, and we look at what happened with Joshua in that commissioning, we understand that when we accept him, We have that same calling. We are called as high priests. We are called as priests, not only priests, but kings. So what he is saying to you here is that when you accept Jesus Christ, you become a king and a priest, giving you the authority to go to the courts of heaven. Now, if we look at Zechariah again, remember there was two things that were happening there. One, he was commissioned as high priest, so that allowed him to be there. When Satan said he couldn't be there, the Lord said, I rebuke you, Satan. He has the authority to be here. So us, being priests, when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we have that same authority to go before the throne of God. We have the authority to be there. But it didn't stop there. What did he say to Joshua in Zechariah? Remember what he said. Is he said, you are wearing filthy clothes. You have a filthy turban on your head. You have a filthy covering. You may have the right to be here, but if you want to operate here, if you want to have effectiveness here, You've got to change your clothes. You've got to change your turban. You've got to change what goes into your mind. You know, we look at that today as seeking intimacy with Jesus Christ. See, we as kings and priests, we have the authority to go before the throne. But to wield that authority before the throne, there has to be righteousness. There has to be purity. There has to be pure motives. See, you can't go as an attorney before the court and just lie and just act a certain way 
that the court doesn't allow. It's same with God. It's same with the Father. Why? Because He has His law. He has His law that He has to judge by. Now the beauty of that is that we are given this blanket of grace. When we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, we are given this blanket of grace to say, I'm forgiven. That's why, you know, we've talked about this before, salvation comes in three parts. There's justification. When you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you are saved. You are justified of your sin. Completely, 100%, you did nothing except accept Him. It was 100% by grace. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. Right? Okay, but the second part of that is sanctification. It's how we live our lives. And I know we've talked about this many times, but it's important to understand that when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you're not automatically given clean clothes. Because we dirty them up. Anybody who's been saved more than about 10 seconds understands that sin doesn't stop. Boy, it'd be nice if it did. It would be so much easier. But it doesn't. We still live in this sinful flesh, which, by the way, will be taken care of in the third part of salvation, which is our glorification. When we're given glorified bodies, praise God, we shed this sinful flesh. But until then, the flesh remains sinful. We are subject to the enemy tempting us. We are subject to the enemy going after us to make us doubt, to make us not believe, whatever it is. We're subject to that, right? Simply because we have sinful flesh. So, so just like Joshua, we have the right to come before the throne because we are made priests. We are made kings and priests. We have the right to come before the throne. But to have that effective voice before the throne of God, to get the attention of the courts, we have to desire a sanctified life. We have to desire Him, intimate with Him. And what gets in the way of that? Sin. When we sin, we put up these roadblocks between us and Jesus Christ. Now there's two categories of sin. The two categories of sin are basically known and unknown. Undeliberate, deliberate. And the roadblocks that we put up are those roadblocks where we make a conscious choice, deliberately knowing what we're doing and we choose to sin. When we're made aware of that sin and we choose to do it anyway, that's deliberate sin. That puts up roadblocks between our relationship with us and Jesus Christ. I can't come to Him and expect intimacy with Him, expect Him to speak to me, expect me to commune with Him on a, on a, such an such a intimate level, if on this side I choose sin. I choose to do this thing that I, I, I just have to do it. Now, that gets into how do we conquer that? 
And, and we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus gives us all that we need. He said, ask. And I will be faithful and just forgive. See, when we go before the court, before you go before the court, you have to be cleansed. You have to put on a new turban. You have to put on a new understanding of who Jesus Christ is in your life. That intimacy of relationship with Him. And when you do that, you could go before the court and you can say, I love you. I am forgiven because your Son is faithful and just to forgive me. So I could go before the Father. If if I'm being just hounded by an enemy, hounded by a temptation, or hounded by something that, that I can't control, even telling it to leave, I can go before the throne of God. I can cleanse myself by asking forgiveness. You know, Psalm says, reveal in me any wicked way. Reveal in me anything that would come between you and I, Lord. Anything. When you ask that, He promises to do it. So you can, even things that are not delivered in your life, any sin, you can be cleansed of that sin. And the Lord can reveal what that is to you. But then you go before the Lord, before the Father, and you submit your request. And you say, just like presenting evidence, you say, I am cleansed by your own Son. I have accepted Him into my heart. And therefore, His blanket of grace covers me. His blood literally covers me. That gives me the right to come before you and request that this tormenting spirit be taken away. Now sometimes, that, and often really, that tormenting spirit has authority to be there. We won't turn to it, but, but Paul and I think we read this a few weeks ago, where Paul had a biting spirit, the Bible says. He had a, a, this spirit that was just constantly going after him. He prayed three times for it to leave, and the Lord would not allow it to leave. Paul went before the court three times, and it was denied him three times. Why? Jesus said, he said, for the sake of pride, I have allowed it to be there. So the accuser had something on Paul that would show if, if he was not there, there would be pride. That gave him the authority to go after him. Now, I happen to believe that it wasn't with him the rest of his life. I happen to believe that there was a conquering of that, and I have no way to prove that, so don't send me emails. <laughs> I'm saying we do have authority in the throne of God but we must go there cleansed. So whatever you're fighting in your life, if you're fighting doubt, if you're fighting fear, if you're fighting anything in your life, you have access to the throne of God because you are a high priest. You're a high priest. You have access, but you've got to go to Him cleansed if you want the court to listen. Wow. When you do, 
let's, you know, just thinking back on what he said to Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. When you do this, you have the authority to not only be in court, but you have the authority to effectively work in court. Now it becomes not about your own life. It becomes about intercession for others. Now you have you you are an attorney before the court of heaven, just like an attorney here on earth. The more they practice, the more they understand the laws of the court, the more they know the procedures, the better at it they get. See, the more we understand intimacy with Jesus Christ and we are wrapped in those new clothes and and that turban on our head becomes the mind of Christ and we're going after what He wants and we're in agreement with Him and we're trusting Him, we become capable of interceding for others in the court. And I want to tell you, this is new stuff. Okay, I've been saved 43 years and I've never heard of any of this until just the last year. Now, was it in the Bible or did the Bible just produce some new pages? No, it's been there. That's always been how it worked. But I believe the bride has not been made to understand how to operate in the courts. But I see it all over the world now. You know, at first I thought, man, God's showing us something new. And, and He's shown us a few things now new, you know, that I'd never heard anywhere else. And then, then I started hearing, you know, we, He started showing it to us toward the beginning of the year, and, and then I heard of this guy, Robert Henderson, started, oh, wow, that's what you've been saying to us, God. And, and then, of course, He just, like, dumped all this information. And, and the, the pages of his word just became alive in God's word as he dumped that. He's doing this all over the world. I was reading about, I, I think I told you last week, um, uh, Wendy Alec, who wrote the book um, Visions from Heaven. She talked about it in there. Well, she wrote that book like three years ago, three or four years ago. So, so it's been being introduced into the body of Christ. Why? Because He is raising up a portion of believers all throughout the globe to intercede for the bride. To intercede for each other. You have a responsibility to intercede for each other. Because I guarantee you 99.9% of the bride of Christ has not been exposed to this. I mean, for that matter, 99% of the bride of Christ doesn't understand intimacy with the Savior. They they understand salvation, but they don't understand intimacy. They don't understand how to operate in that intimacy. They certainly don't understand that the Father is a righteous judge, and they may understand that we have an accuser that accuses us all the time, but just like me for 42 years, I never made the connection that I could do anything about that. But see, as we learn this, as we're in law school, if you will, we're in law school learning how to operate in the courts of heaven, we then take on a responsibility 
To do it for the bride. To do it for others. To do it for our family. To do it for our friends. We can intercede for others just as Joshua interceded for Israel. Just as Jesus intercedes for us. But see, we have to go in agreement. We can't go there in our filthy rags. We have to go in agreement with Jesus Christ why He's our attorney. See, usually a court case doesn't go so well when, when the, the defendant fires his attorney and says, I'll do this myself. <laughs> That's not a good recipe for the courtroom for that defendant. We need to go in agreement with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's our advocate. He's our lawyer on retainer. <laughs> and by the way, he paid for it. He paid for it with his blood. He paid for that intimacy to be with you, with his very life, with his blood. And now he stands before the Father for us. So I want to encourage you as we close here. I want to encourage you to understand that whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, heaven is a courtroom. And there is a real legal battle going on. And it's time that the bride engage in that battle and understand how to operate in those courts. Because when we do, Jesus Christ comes in power. And He operates in power through those people to intercede for others. And He is raising up the bride of Christ. I've said it a zillion times. Revelation 3 verse 9. The body of Christ will become beloved by the Jewish nation and by this world. Those who don't know Christ. They will be honored. That means the bride of Christ will rise in such a way that it will bring literal honor to this world. If you've not heard me say that a million times, Look at it. Revelation 3, verse 9. It happens before verse 10, which is the rapture. This will happen, it has to happen, before the rapture comes. And I know that's really controversial. Because I know the church says, well, the rapture can happen any time. Sure it can. But i got a little problem with that because verse 9 hasn't happened yet. Okay, the, the bride cannot be honored if the bride is gone. And and I'm not expecting you to believe me. That's fine. Go look it up. Ask God. He'll tell you the same thing he told me. (laughs) So for that to happen, the bride has to understand who Jesus Christ is. For that to happen, the bride has to come together and understand how to operate in the courts of heaven. The bride has to intercede for one another, those who don't understand. Those who don't even understand what intimacy with Jesus Christ is like. You're going to your typical churches. Even those who, who, I'm talking about those who believe in salvation, preach the gospel, you go into your typical church and they are playing church. Well, we have our, we do this and this and this and we got it all timed out and, you know, we, we, we have our worship, we have our speaking, we have our communion, blah, blah, blah. And all good things. 
But they don't understand the intimacy with Jesus Christ. They don't understand that in order to have intimacy, you have to have communication. That goes back to what we began with, right, in John chapter 16. That the Holy Spirit is sent to be that communicator. To be that comforter. To be that helper. When you are seeking intimacy with Jesus Christ, have the expectation to hear back from Him. Not just through His Word. Although He does. He speaks through His Word. That's the foundation of what He speaks. But like any human relationship, He speaks back and forth to you personally. He wants to. Have that expectation that He will. And the Bible tells us that He will. But then the the Bible also tells us how we can discern that that's Him. Because when we're open to that communication, it's, it's like Matthew 6.33, seek Him in that realm, seek Him the, in the kingdom of God realm. When you open yourself up to that realm, you are not only opening up yourself to the Spirit of God. You are opening up yourself to the Spirit of deception. Simply because you become a target. You want to become intimate with Jesus Christ? You become a target. But the Bible gives us ways to understand the difference. Ways to know the difference. And Jesus said, my people are my sheep and they know my voice. Once you learn his voice in that intimate place where you're with him, you know it. Nobody can tell you different. You know it. Why? Because you recognize his voice And it's always confirmed in the Word of God. Jesus will never tell you, a spirit will never tell you, a good angel will never tell you anything contrary to the Word of God. So don't just say, well, you know, I don't want to take that risk, so I'm just going to kind of stay out of the whole thing. That's cessationism. That's what I did for 40 years. I didn't want to take that risk, so you know what? I'm just not going to expose it. To, I, I just don't believe any of it. I'm just saved, God. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll live my cool little life. But see, there's really no blessing in that. There's absolutely no intimacy in that. There can't be. Because in intimacy, the communication is two-way. Think about your own relationship if you're married. Or, or the closest relationship you have, if you never talked to them, or if all you did was talk to them and never heard from them, they just wrote you letters, you probably wouldn't have that kind of intimacy, would you? I've been married to Alexis for, is it 28? 28 years? I think 28. She won't know. I'm the one that remembers. <laughs> I know, that was a mistake saying that, wasn't it? 28 years. If all I knew about her was what she wrote down, we wouldn't have the relationship we do. We'd still be married, right? But we wouldn't have the intimacy. We wouldn't have the closeness. She wouldn't be my best friend. Why? Because I couldn't relate to her. I could understand how she describes herself and what's written about her, but I wouldn't have the intimacy with her. It's no different with Jesus Christ. No different 
with Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him. You can know of Him. You can be covered in His blood and be saved. But you cannot be intimate with Him without the Holy Spirit having power and place in your life. You can't. See, the Holy Spirit has a couple of different functions. First and foremost, when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, He seals your spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Your spirit is sealed. You are guaranteed heaven. Here's your get-out-of-hell-free card. I know that's flip, but in reality, you are justified. Here is your, your stamp saying that you are in Lamb's Book of Life and you are going to heaven. Period. Do you know if you do nothing else from that point on, it doesn't change? Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a guarantee stamped on our spirit. You could turn around and hate God and it doesn't change a thing in terms of you going to heaven. What changes is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where we partner with the Holy Spirit in hearing the voice of our Savior. So as you go through this fast and you're praying and praying for Him to speak to you, have expectation that He'll speak to you. Not just His principles, but that He will speak to you. And He speaks in many, many different ways. If you want to know all the ways that He speaks, go take the ladies' class. I know it's part of her notes, or maybe Alexa will send it to you if you're a guy. (laughs) He speaks in many different ways. And by the way, He speaks in all of those ways. Not just one or two of them. Like, well, you know, Casey, you got saved. I'm going to pick, yeah, these two ways I'm going to speak to you. Not the others, just these two ways. There you go. That's not what he does. He speaks in every way you will allow him to speak. He has spoken to my heart. He certainly speaks to me through his word. I have heard his voice audibly. He has actually written me a note. How crazy is that? I don't even know if you have that one on your list, Lex. I have a note written by him. I know, I'm whacked. Sorry for all those online. He speaks to us many, many, many different ways. He's God. He can speak to us however He wants. Have expectation of Him speaking to you. And He will. That's the intimacy. As you seek Him in intimacy, it has to happen. It must happen for you to have that intimacy. So I want to encourage you this morning. Seek intimacy with Jesus Christ. You're already allowed to be before the court. And next week we'll begin talking about evidence that's presented to court and how to operate. But you're already allowed to be there because you've accepted Christ into your heart. But to be able to operate, to be able to be effective for yourself as well as becoming effective for others as an intercessor, you've got to be intimate with Jesus Christ. You've got to seek Him in such a sweet place of relationship that nothing else is more important. And if you do that, I promise you, I promise you, you will see rewards in that relationship, in that sweetness that you never, ever imagined. Let's bow our heads in prayer.